Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal is to find the exceptional people in their fields and, you know, bring them to you, the listener, and ask them good questions and uh, get information out of them that maybe, you know, typical magazine articles and interviews wouldn't get, you know, the good stuff. Today I have uh, Jana Mazet, a PhD. She's a, a professor of epidemiology and disease ecology at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine and executive director of the UC Davis One Health Institute. So she works on uh, global health problem solving for emerging infectious diseases and conservation challenges, which is, you know, the emerging infectious disease part is uh, particularly appropriate right now with this, this COVID nightmare. So, Jonna, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for the honor of having me. Yeah. And I guess, you know, since you work with uh, veterinary issues and since this is, I guess, what they call a supposedly a zoonotic disease, a, uh, a virus that jumped from a bat or a, a pangolin or something into people, uh, your background's pretty appropriate, right? Yeah. I mean, for the last decade, I've been leading an international uh, consortium of amazing people working all over the world to uh, find viruses just like the SARS-CoV-2 that's caused this terrible um, tragedy that we're living in now. Um, and so during that Time, we really um, feel proud that we've helped the countries where we are working, more than 35 countries, over the last 10 years. And um, we've discovered a lot of virus, including more than 100 coronaviruses. So in particular with this, uh, this coronavirus, have you been able to look at the sequence? Have you been able to uh, work on it specifically? Or is your work still yeah. just in general on, on these kind of viruses? Um, well, as far as the in general part, we've we've um, published studies showing uh, all sorts of sides of coronavirus diversity uh, through our findings on Predict. But on this one specifically, we've certainly looked at the sequence. We've been helping the laboratories in the countries where we're working to identify uh, cases in their countries. In fact, before the sequence was even available, we used our our project that I mentioned, Predict's platform. Um, which is a broad-based platform to uh, help the countries surrounding China uh, rule in and rule out introduced cases before the specific tests could be developed because earlier even. So just in a few days, it might that be. So what aspects of all this are you studying or what are you involved in, uh, in helping to create or figure out? Sure. Well, um, like I said, one of the big things that we've been doing for the last decade is to understand um, the viruses that are out there and able to spill over from animal hosts into people uh, and cause epidemics and hopefully never again pandemics um, and raise the flag that we need to be ready for disease X um, that could come from any of these spillover events. So we've been um, working on that. I, we have a lot more uh, people listening and interested now, unfortunately, because of the tragedy. I wish uh, that we had done even more to prepare before uh, this one happened. But I think 
we're super lucky that um, this virus is um, not more deadly than it is because we can see how easily it spreads. And the only thing um, that is, is really saving us right now is our, is our behavior of staying home um, and that the virus isn't more deadly. So I know we're all very stressed and living with this tragedy, but, um, but I hope that we will take heed now and um, jump into action and really prepare so that if another and when another dangerous pathogen spills over, we're more ready. Well, how are we supposed to prepare? What are we supposed to do? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so right now um, I'm working with um, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine uh, to look at all of the aspects of controlling this current outbreak, but also to look more forward thinking and to, to find virus and uh, understand the characteristics by which they transmit, how they spill over, who's at most risk. And we can do that in a couple of different ways. We, we certainly have proven through the PREDICT project that we can go to the least resource countries in the world and work with them to um, get out in the field, train their people to be super safe, um, identify uh, the high-risk transmission zones or interfaces where people are interacting uh, with animals in a particularly stressful way for the animals to cause the spillover event to happen. And then we can get into the laboratories and we can use broad platforms to identify viruses. Um, and that's super useful. So the training and the identification platforms means that those countries are more prepared right at the start to find what's happening in their countries and stop it. Um, it also allows us to start this catalog or database that's not just the virologic or sequence information about those viruses that are out there, but it includes information about all the different ways that the virus can infect people. And it also includes looking at how one virus may be more risky than another. It's only by going out and discovering about a half a million viruses that we believe are out there and ready to spill over into people that we can start to understand which ones are likely to be the more dangerous ones and which ones aren't and begin to preemptively target our mitigation measures like um, staging, preparedness, equipment, uh, and um, even having better pipelines for rapid vaccine development. Well, how are you going to go out and characterize these viruses? Do you pick animals that people are likely to come in contact with or unlikely well, we, to come in contact with? Do you profile their virome? Yeah. So um, initially, as we've been working um, in primarily Southeast Asia and Africa, Initially, what we do is we, we go talk with the, the folks, um, especially the ministries of environment, ministries of health, and ministries of agriculture, and bring them all together. And we say, where are you seeing fevers of unknown origin in people and seeing the specific drivers risk factors for these spillover events? Those include changing landscapes, increasing human populations, and biodiversity. So we know that people have access and are being exposed, but also that there's fever going undiagnosed that we should be looking into. Then we sample the animals and the people in those interfaces. In the what we call the proof of concept now in PREDICT, we um, only sampled really um, 
uh, intensively non-human primates, bats, and rodents because all of our mathematical modeling showed us that, that was, those were the targets that were the most likely to have um, viruses that could spill over to us and also the animals that we're interacting with in ways that put us at risk. What we believe we need to do now is take that even a step further and say, okay, we can look at the most risky. That's how far our money's gone so far. But we need to look actually at all mammals and water birds um, that, that are really the hosts of a lot of things that are available to spill over to us in all the interfaces that are rest in, left in the world. And we're calling that the Global Virome Project. Um, which will take countries coming together, people, projects, teams coming together and working in a collaborative way to identify these risk factors, the hosts, the geography, and the viruses themselves. It just seems so expensive. I don't know how you, uh -huh. how, how would you pick it? I mean, are there, you know, bats supposedly seem to harbor a lot mm -hmm. of yep. really terrible viruses, but maybe uh, more commonplace creatures under stress of, you know, places like being in wet markets or you know, loss of habitat, uh, that's more likely to cause problems. I mean, how do you pick, how do you know what will work and what won't? You know, what if, uh, sure. I don't know, if animals that we're in common contact with for some reason uh, end up becoming a, a, an intermediate carrier of something, and then because we're in contact with them a lot, you know, cats or dogs, that it gets to uh -huh. us. Okay, so historically, we have, as a human race, been exposed to, um, things that our own microbiome that sometimes make us sick because we get stressed or other things. And we've been exposed um, over history to the domestic animals that we live with as pets and we eat. And so we find less and less emerging infectious diseases from those species because we are less naive to them and their microbiome. So um, what we're really concerned about now are the viruses that can spill over from wildlife hosts into us or into those domestic animals that we live in such close contact with. Um, and we, we would then be the naive host, as would often the domestic animals. And so we can, we can um, be more um, susceptible to severe disease because we haven't seen those viruses in evolutionary history. So you're right, it is extremely expansive um, what we're talking about doing, we're talking about looking at all of them, all of the mammals and water birds, and we know what it can that it can be done, and we know how much it would cost. It's whether or not people are willing to jump in and do that. We really believe that we should understand them as much about viruses as we do about bacteria, and and we have all the tools to do that now. The cost is uh, it's in the low billions, but before this terrible COVID tragedy, um, we knew that just do, finding all of this virus and all of the circumstances would cost just 10% of what we had spent on previous large epidemics like SARS. And now we know that it's, it's decimal places lower than that when you consider a pandemic of this scale. So really finding the viruses um, is the first step to preparing for them and it's much, much less expensive than responding to even a portion of a large epidemic. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, how do you know again, like what about bacteriophages that uh, uh -huh. become, you know, virus-like to us? Sure. Is that a potential vector? I mean, how do you, 
how do you find all these viruses? And then what do you, are you sequencing them or how do you know what we they are, do based yeah. on their sequence? Yeah. And you can't, you can't know everything based on their sequence. You have to do uh, additional tests, but first and foremost, we need to understand the circumstances they're in and find the virus because if it's not likely to come into contact with humans, well, we're less worried about that than one that comes into contact with humans frequently, right? And has more opportunity to spill over. There are things we can do with the sequence and we can reverse engineer and, um, and make a sort of safe model for working with the virus so that we can understand more how it uses its receptors um, and um, binds to, uh, to human cells and other animal cells. So that's all part of the follow-on work that needs to happen. Um, but, but yes, we do. We do sequence um, these viruses. First, we use sort of what we call um, uh, a more con conservative approach in that we aren't interested in every viral species that's already known to man. We're interested in finding the ones um, that are known to cause problems, but more importantly right now, ones like SARS-CoV-2 um, that are unknown but might cause problems. We need to find um, the virus, identify it, sequence it to identify it, but then we also need to find the host because when we find a virus that is infecting multiple hosts and especially affecting multiple hosts that are really different from each other evolutionarily, um, like a mouse and a tiger, uh, then we know that that virus is more likely to be able to jump into humans as well. So, um, so it's not just the viral characteristic. That's, that's something people have focused on um, for decades and decades, and it's important work. But we also need to understand the transmission potential and what human behaviors and what we're doing to the planet are driving the risk for spillover. Yeah, and then, I mean, from what I understand, there's uh, plenty of viruses that just are persistive in us and in other animals. And mm -hmm. then we have endogenized viral uh, DNA. So from what I've also read, you know, uh, sometimes endogenized viral DNA can be activated, you know, in times of stress. So how yeah, do you evaluate in a, a chimpanzee, you know, let's uh -huh. say, what's endogenized that could be reactivated? What's persistent in the chimpanzees that's not harmful to them, but maybe when, they, when they're stressed, now all of a sudden it activates and, you know, is harmful to someone else. I mean, how do you characterize what, even what to look for? Right. So we, um, we looked through, we did an extensive uh, look at the literature and identified about 40 risk factors for spillover and then going human spread. And then we asked all of the um, researchers that wanted to participate around the world that were experts in this field to rank the likelihood that these different risk factors that have been identified here and there, or we identified through the PREDICT project, which ones of those should be given the most weight, which were most important for spillover. So it's imperfect system in that we haven't studied viruses enough to understand all of these things that you're asking, and we absolutely can and need to do that. But we need to start finding them to even be able to do that. So we have to start somewhere and we can start now. But when we worked with those um, researchers all over the world, 70 different researchers helped to rank the risk factors, we started to basically almost crowdsource the science around the world in a collaborative way 
to uh, put together a platform where people can uh, enter their own viral findings um, and share them at the same time use the risk platform to identify where they might rank as far as spillover potential and as new findings are coming out we can refine that system together that's great what so what are the risk factors of you know from most risky to least again i know you can't name them all but yeah, what are some of the ones that uh, surprised yeah. you uh okay well ones that didn't surprise me were you know RNA-based viruses because they tend to mutate faster and transmit a little bit easier. So, so definitely there were things about the viruses themselves um, that have been known for a while um, that that are definitely in there. Ones that surprised us more, even though we've been working on this, it, it I guess it wasn't a recent surprise, but um, over time, uh, this host uh, plasticity seems to be way more important. And by that, I mean that host range, how many uh, hosts that can infect and how different those hosts are, seem to be much more important than, for example, being most genetically related or a near neighbor to another virus. So for example, uh, if looking at the first SARS coronavirus, finding the, the most closely related SARS coronavirus wasn't the thing that made that coronavirus most likely to spill over because we've found a lot of those now. It was something else. Um, and it's that something else that we need to narrow down. Um, but this host switching was seems to be one of the biggest factors that's giving us a clue to that right now. And that probably lies in the, the spike protein that people are hearing a lot about or that key that fits into um, the receptor on uh, susceptible host cells like humans. But what would make, again, what would make a virus um, able to infect many different types of hosts? Is it just that it just happens to target a very common uh, entry, entry path into cells that a lot of creatures share? That's one thing for sure. Um, uh, some viruses, you know, they can um, uh, jump easily because they can hide better from the host immune system or they replicate better in the host because they can hide from the host immune system. So we're looking at those pathways as well. Um, the immune pathways in the host themselves give us clues. So we can look at the viral characteristics like the spike protein for coronaviruses um, and then look at the ACE2 receptor which is the receptor in the host cells, like in humans, that seems to be um, how the virus enters. And then once it enters into the cell, we can look at how the host immune system reacts. So hosts that react um, less uh, severely uh, tend to be better amplifying hosts than hosts that react really severely because the ones that react very severely tend to get sick and maybe die. Um, before they transmit the the virus too much. So all of these things are really important, but it it's, uh, sort of uh, differs from virus to virus. So it's not it's not simple. But we're starting by this um, collaborative effort. We we call it the One Health effort, uh, where we are more holistically looking at how. Um, the health of humans, animals, and the environment, including um, plants and our, our foods, are really interconnected and that we have to look at all of those together. We can't simply be looking at only one pathway at a time. So that takes experts in different fields coming together to make this happen. So what are some of the near-term 
goals of PREDICT and of the project? So um, PREDICT right now is finishing up, but we are, um, we are currently assisting in uh, the 28 countries uh, that we were most active in towards the end of this decade-long project. We're currently uh, assisting the amazing professionals in those countries to have what they need in their laboratories to do um, more exhaustive testing for uh, COVID disease through finding SARS coronavirus 2. Um, so we're, we're really supplying the technical assistance uh, to the labs to help them get ready, especially in countries where they don't have widespread community transmission. Um, and we are also um, putting our folks that, uh, again, those amazing scientists and health practitioners who were trained through the PREDICT project in this One Health approach, we're putting them, um, allowing them, enabling them with uh, salary support that they didn't necessarily have before to contribute to their government platforms. So we're seeing our PREDICT scientists, some of whom were the first people to ever discover or write a paper about coronaviruses in their countries, um, they're becoming um, the experts that are sitting on the national task forces in their countries and helping them um, do the infection prevention and control. So that's most important right now um, because we really need to halt this pandemic. In addition, we are going back through all of our archives and testing species like pangolins. Lots of people are hearing about pangolins that maybe weren't our target um, hosts in PREDICT because again, we were looking at the bats, primates, and rodents. Um, but now we wanna understand this particular SARS-CoV-2 even better. So we're going back to our archives and looking to um, find the different hosts who could be infected by this virus and understand the transmission and spillover risk because there's still work to be done to find out exactly how this virus did spill over um, and keep it from happening again and figure out clues from this specific dangerous coronavirus that will help us understand the other coronaviruses that we have found and that will be can be found in the future. Any, uh, I mean, what do you think is going to happen with the current, you know, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, it doesn't seem like it's stoppable at all. I mean, do you think it's just, well, we're gonna have to just accept that it's gonna be a, a, a persistent virus that comes around every year or is just here until it affects a very large percentage of the world's population? Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to say. I think that um, right now, just stressing that we do need to stay at home, give our healthcare systems a chance to be uh, up and running, um, we need to, um, you know, work really hard on therapies and on vaccines. I mean, I would hope to say that we won't need the vaccine far into the future, but I think out of an abundance of caution, we're going to need to be vaccinating and being careful about uh, this coronavirus and others. Um, so we're, we're really right now in a situation where we are staying at home to slow spread to protect. Um, the systems that will protect us, like the healthcare systems. Once we all start going back to work um, and leaving our homes, we're going to um, unfortunately see some upticks in cases uh, and illness. And um, though it, it remains to be seen how we'll handle that, but it's likely that we're 
we're going to need some phased approach to getting back to work that probably doesn't include everybody going back all at once so that we can continue to sort of stall this um, pandemic while we get vaccine available. Um, there's, of course, always the hope that um, seasonal changes in either our immune systems or what's happening in the environment will change the transmission patterns of coronaviruses. It, but we, the evidence is not there to say that that will happen. So that's a hope, not a plan. Out of an abundance of caution, again, we need to, to give um, you know, the systems the chance to get ready and get busy on the vaccines. And I'm super excited and pleased about how fast, uh, for example, the CEPI coalition has come into play to get vaccine trials going. Um, but we, it remains to be seen how long it will take to get manufacturing going. So, um, so yeah, we can get through this. We can get through this one. And I think we should turn our energies to being prepared for the next one. And you asked me that question before, and I, I don't feel like I I got to the place where I really wanted to say, we can prepare our systems um, as far as our health systems to be more nimble than was proven to be a problem in this current situation. We can provide um, the infrastructure and the planning to be able to handle any of these viruses as long as we're ready to trust science and to jump in quickly at the beginning and not stall. So if we work together and we allow our system to not be so siloed disease by disease, but include planning for the unexpected, we can be ready for the next one. We can have testing systems and pipelines ready. We can have government organizations working together instead of against each other. And we can um, really change the way we think and react um, to uh, the warning signals that we get from other countries, but also just from our own communities and environment. And that that's really what's going to fix this for us. Yeah, I mean, the next time something like this happens, I mean, there's no, you know, even though if we have a healthcare system, it really doesn't seem like it can do anything. You know, it puts people on ventilators, let's say, but they die anyway. Right. So right. it just doesn't seem like there's, I don't know, there's no solution unless we have a vaccine mm -hmm. or a, an antiviral. So it seems like, I guess, right. like what you're doing is identifying potential threats, but we would need to be on a very fast track to find antivirals right. and or vaccines in order to really have is, an effect. But if you find the viruses ahead of time and you can look at the ones that are making animals sick or, or in tissue culture, infecting cells and causing cell death, you can start to identify what we don't know now because we haven't studied viruses enough. You can start mm -hmm. to identify what characteristics of which viruses we need to target vaccines to and which characteristics we don't. If we don't start finding those viruses, I agree with you. It is kind of hopeless. We'll just be sitting here waiting for the next one. And that's what we've been talking about for the last 10 years. Let's stop doing that. Let's stop chasing the last one and then throwing all of our money at that last one. Let's get prepared for the future. Let's have those uh, that deeper understanding of the viral communities and diversity, and then start to understand what makes certain viruses dangerous and other ones not. And we haven't done that work yet. It is possible yeah, though. And I, and I don't want you to have like a, a kind of defeatist message here. We, we are seeing the vaccine, antiviral, 
all those pipelines are being dramatically improved. They were to some extent before this, but there, there's been a major sea change. So if we can find a silver lining out of this whole terrible tragedy, it is that, um, that people are thinking differently about this now. And hopefully, because um, we have this basic call to action, um, hopefully we won't revert to our sort of human nature of saying, well, that, that'll never happen again, or that's in the past, and this is more important what's happening here today. We need to be ready, and, and we have the technology and the momentum to do that. Yeah, it makes sense. So what's the best way for, for people to see some of the findings, some of the commonalities that, you know, that Pareto of the risk factors? Is that published and where? How do people find out more? Yeah, so um, there there's a lot of published literature. If you if uh, folks wanted to go to predict.global, www.predict.global, you can actually look at the maps of everywhere we've done surveillance and even um, click on the findings. You can see the test results of the viruses we found and in what species. And you, if you're a scientist and want to link out to GenBank and take a look at those viruses, um, you can do that as well. You can also um, see uh, the publications that have been coming out of the project are all listed there. Um, that we're probably, because of, uh, of this uh, current situation, we might be a little behind on posting some of those, but we're getting those up. Um, we have more than 200 scientific publications that have come out of the project um, that you can check out. And um, I definitely uh, think this host plasticity uh, piece would be something good to look at. Um, the, the first author is Dr. Christine Johnson, and I'm the senior author, last author on that paper. And then there's uh, our, our paper in science on the Global Viron Project and why it should be done. So there's a lot of opportunity to review those materials. You can also look at globalviromproject.org. Um, for more information. Okay, that's great. It's a lot of resources. Yeah. Well, Jonna, thank you for uh, for doing what you do and paying attention to this because, you know, uh, as we all know now, it's very important, yeah. far more important than we realized. So thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thanks for shining a light on it and doing what you do to get there. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.